Please be advised that this podcast explores the topics of death, burial and exhumation and contains content that some listeners may find distressing. If you're listening for the first time, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. Evening News Supplement, Saturday 6th of July 1901. An acre or so of the ground has been trenched so deeply that the men are about shoulder deep amongst the hummocks of clay and it looks like a choppy sea of yellow and grey earth. It's horrid to touch or walk in. You sink at every step, and a real horror seizes you, as you remember that for long years it had been wrapped about the bones of those who died, so very long ago that we forget. A group of workers stand, clenching shovels on a hillside of churned-up sand. They wear collared shirts, suspenders, waistcoats, hats, moustaches. One holds a pipe between his teeth. They gaze toward the camera, wary and weary. This photograph captures little of the gruesome task they're undertaking, and we can only imagine what these men have seen while digging up the Devonshire Street Cemetery. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss, and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. In this episode, how thousands of human remains were exhumed and moved, and what Sydney siders made of this extraordinary undertaking in the heart of their city. Oh, there's the sign. That's the turn off there to the main. Sabrina and I are on our way to Botany today, just a few kilometres from Sydney Airport, to visit a place that in some ways represents the beginning and the end of our story. It's somewhere up here, or maybe it's a bit further on. Oh no, it's it up here. This is the Eastern Suburbs Memorial Park, a large cemetery which still actively services this area of Sydney. Oh, there's a man leaving some beautiful yellow roses at a vault and a hearse coming through. As we turn into the grounds, we're met with a collection of huge, old gravestones. There they all are. Oh my goodness. They're so big when you see them in real life. It's obvious looking at the neat rows, set into concrete slabs, that this is not their original home. This is what's left of the Devonshire Street Cemetery. <sighs> Respected by all who knew them. Oh, look at this, is beautiful. This remnant of headstones are beautiful, though altered. The overwhelming colour is the rust red of the lichen that's gradually crept over them. Oh, look, here's somebody who must have been quite close to the Assistant first fleet. Assistant surgeon James Millam arrived in the colonies in 1790. Erected by his widow. Wow. He would have been one of the first, one of the first buried. Senior assistant surgeon, I think it says. That's quite a lovely little stone, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, some of the larger ones are almost... I mean, they just seem... Bewilderingly big. I'm about 5'7 in old money, and it's taller than me. Yeah. That would be almost six foot, this headstone. Yeah, incredible. Some of the headstones can still be read clearly, and a few have been restored by descendants, but most are slowly eroding away. Oh, look at that one. You can just make out the beginning. The angels something. Age 13 months four days, the daughter of John, John and Eleanor Berry. Oh, look, look at, at this. this one, yeah, a hand holding an axe, felling a tree. 
Wow. Yet the skillful work of the stoneworkers, the monumental masons who carved the flowing curves, the ornate scrolls, the weeping angels, the draped urns and broken columns lives on. Oh, look, Bushranger. John Dunn. He's the one that there was... There he is. There you go. That's Died. actually a pretty fine-looking headstone. It is, isn't it? Died 10th of March, 1866, aged 19 years. 19. Hung at Darlinghurst Jail, 19th of March, 1866. I wouldn't have thought, see, that's just our assumption. You think, oh, look, a hanged criminal is not going to have a headstone. But obviously he did. <laughs> I mean, he did recant on his deathbed. We have the letters in the library that he wrote to his family. We've spent a lot of time looking at photographs of the cemetery and reading the written records of the gravestone inscriptions. But standing in front of the actual gravestones that once stood in the Devonshire Street Cemetery packs quite an emotional punch. The night on which she died, lifting and waving her hand, she turned her bright and beautiful oh. eyes to heaven and said, Father, take me this night <gasps> to thyself. Oh, take me this night. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Age 26 years, Eliza. Oh, you just don't even want to imagine what pain she must have been in. Oh. I wonder how many years it will take for these all to have worn away. We're here not only to visit this extraordinary piece of our colonial history, but to meet Keith Johnson, genealogist and historian who has spent much of his life researching and documenting generations of Sydney ciders. Hi, Keith. Keith, it's Elise. Well, it's great to be here. So when was the last time you actually came here, Keith? Well, I think it was 1971. There was the odd tree. I used to park my Morris Minor under one of them. <laughs> As Keith leads us up and down the rows, it becomes clear very quickly that he is a font of information about pretty much everyone who was buried in Devonshire Street. Yes, these are Jewish stones. Yeah, you can see the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew. Samuel Lyons, of course, he was at Lyons Terrace, beautiful terrace facing Hyde Park. That's right. He was an auctioneer. Oh, Richard Tuckwell's a very early, you know, merchant in Sydney. Yeah, and look, it's almost completely gone, yes. isn't it? Oh, that's the Harness one. He was the organist at St Mary's Cathedral. Right. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Keith has been an active member of the Sydney Historical Community for many decades and at 18 was one of the youngest members of the Royal Australian Historical Society. I've got a fairly good memory. If I enjoy people, I remember them. And if I'm interested in something that they tell me, I remember that. And I love records. You know, I love dealing in old <laughs> records. Keith could regale us with stories for hours. He was having a relationship with a lady doctor in Ottery St Mary. And there, as he said to Barbara, now you've got to let Oliver marry this woman. It seems he's travelled everywhere and met everyone. Uh, Barry Humphreys, the only time I've ever met him, I shook hands with him and was like a wet fish. <laughs> Keith started researching these headstones almost 50 years ago, but the individual histories and stonework details are still sharp in his mind. I remember that stone. I don't know why they've got it sitting there. It was somewhere else. It looks as if it's been moved. But this is John Cadman of Cadman's Cottage, and he was the superintendent of government boats. And that stone 
was one of the last in the Anglican section. He died in 1948. Keith's interest in history was sparked in his childhood by his great-grandmother, who told him stories of his convict roots. She died when Keith was 13, but not before she shared a memory that has stayed with him ever since. She was born in 1866, and she told me she went with her parents to claim the remains uh, at Devonshire Street in 1901. And she would have been 34 or 35. You know, she was a young married woman. So she went with her parents and her mother claimed her ancestors in the Presbyterian portion and her father claimed his parents in the Catholic section. It was 1901 when the government announced that the old cemetery would be cleared to make way for the new central station and gave Keith's family, along with the rest of Sydney, the chance to claim their relatives' remains. The Department of Public Works will bear all reasonable expenses incurred in the re-interment of bodies in such cemetery as the said representatives of the deceased may desire. There's an amazing photograph taken the same year these orders were issued. It shows the Wesleyan, or Methodist, section of the cemetery, crowded with graves that come right up to the Devonshire Street footpath, where people stroll along, going about their business. Near the old wooden fence at the back of the section, a family gathers around a very tall and elaborate headstone. This group are very likely in the process of ordering the re-interment of the relatives buried beneath them. But while the government wanted to give descendants this opportunity, it wasn't made clear what would happen to the unclaimed remains, and moving them wasn't the only option floated. One of the really interesting debates that emerged between about 88 and 1901, when the bodies were resumed, was the whole idea of cremation. Because cremation was illegal. Katie Gilchrist is a historian with an interest in death. It was against the law to burn a dead body. And once the coffins started getting taken out of Devonshire Street Cemetery, people started to go, hang on, do you know what a much better idea would be not to relocate them, but to burn them where they are, which would be far more hygienic and far cheaper. Maybe it was time that cremation was allowed in New South Wales because it had been first permitted in England in 1885. But the following year, the Pope and Rome had totally come out and said, we are never going to condone cremation. So this really divided Sydney siders, especially Protestants and the medical profession were really into the idea. But Catholics were like, no, because we need our bodies when the day of resurrection comes. Whereas Protestants were more likely to think of heaven as a spiritual place where souls met up once again rather than actual physical bodies. About a month after the government invited Sydney to claim their dead, a fascinating article appeared in the Daily Telegraph. It describes cremation as a wholesome and better way to dispose of a body, but argues that the real issue at hand is the fact that the unclaimed dead have no say in the matter. The relatives making claims have done so on the condition that the remains be reburied, that the dust is still consigned to dust. Why, therefore, it reads, should exception be made in the case of those bodies, the friends of which happen to be absent? 
When those persons went away, they left their dead in a country that presumably would respect them and not take advantage of the absence of their friends to treat them with what might be regarded as a special indignity. This article accurately predicts that the approval of cremation will take time and patience, like all reforms that have sentimental obstacles to surmount. Cremation wasn't to be legalised in New South Wales until 1925. Seven days after this article appeared, the Department of Public Works announced the creation of a new cemetery near La Perouse, which would receive any unclaimed remains. It turns out that the government had first petitioned already established cemeteries around Sydney to take the remains, but most of them wouldn't accept the old stonework or iron railings. Hence the need for a new cemetery and a promise that all existing monuments, tombstones, headstones, footstones and iron railings would be reverentially re-erected over the respective graves by skilled workmen. For city historian Lisa Murray, it's interesting that the government went to the effort to recreate the cemetery. Just a few short decades before, a very different approach was taken with the old Sydney burial ground on George Street. It was the first official burial ground for the general population of Sydney town. So it was closed in 1820, it fell into disrepair and eventually the government agrees to give that to Sydney City Council so that they can build a town hall on the site. There was much debate about whether they'd find any remains. They did though, but there were no, absolutely no kind of registers surviving. So it was much more a, an approach of just clearing the ground gathering up any remains that they could find and reburying them in a mass grave out at Rookwood Necropolis, which has a massive monument on it, recognising that they're from that first cemetery. So I suppose Devonshire Street Cemetery is a bit different because a lot more of the memorials survive. It's a much bigger cemetery and a much bigger process to actually deal with the remains. And I think that's a really interesting idea that these people might not have been claimed by anyone, but we're going to give them equal respect in actually taking them to another cemetery and gave them rows and gave them the sort of space of a grave plot. Now that they had a plan for a beautifully located place of re-interment, the government urged relatives who had made claims to consider withdrawing their applications with the assurance that their interests will be safeguarded in every way, compatible with reverence, decency and skill. From what we can tell, this suggestion was largely ignored, with applicants requesting re-interments at other Sydney cemeteries, including Gore Hill and Waverley, with a few even travelling interstate. Keith's family, along with many others, chose to reinter at Rookwood, west of the city, the remains travelling in their new coffins by rail from Mortuary Station. At the time these plans were being made, no one really knew how many people had gone into the ground at Devonshire Street. Burials had been taking place there for 36 years before deaths had to be legally registered and the religious records were patchy. Most estimates sit at around 30,000, yet only 8,460 were claimed. For Lisa, it makes sense that the vast majority of remains went unclaimed. The cemetery had been closed 
since the mid 1860s. And so by 1900, 1901, this was a cemetery that was just not in the minds of most people. It was just sort of this overgrown space in the heart of the city. And I think probably for the great majority of people, they didn't maybe have a specific connection to people being buried there. A lot of the people buried there probably may not have had other relatives in Sydney. They could have been interstate. They could have been back in England or Europe or gone to America. And there weren't that many records really publicly available for people to look at to see if they had relatives buried there. The fact that so many people didn't claim it it shows the way that Sydney's society became fragmented in a way. It was January when the government called for relatives to come forward and July when workmen started digging. In the intervening six months, Sydney newspapers ensured that the cemetery that had so long been forgotten became one of the most visited places in the city. It was the family vaults which presented the most gruesome appearance. Some of these had quite collapsed and through the holes thus caused, fragments of coffins and human bones could be seen. The early few months of 1901, Devonshire Street Cemetery became the place to go and visit. Some journalists really said, Sydney siders, go and see the Devonshire Street Cemetery before it's too late. Go and see this last spot of, of old Sydney where you know so many venerated old colonists had been buried. Everyone ought to go and see this cemetery before it is too late. So do go, all of you, and show some reverence for the men who have helped to make us able to stand alone. And so people did, especially once the overgrowth had been cut back, people did go and have picnics and there was a lot of souvenir hunters. It was like when Darlinghurst Jail closed in 1914, after all the prisoners had been moved down to Long Bay. A hundred thousand Sydney siders went to look round the gallows and the solitary cells. And it was a form of strange convict tourism, a bit like tombstone tourism in a way, which is it's really fascinating. But people like that kind of stuff. And other people were absolutely horrified by this and said, no, the dead should be left to, to their peace. To the editor, is the dust of men who in their day worked hard to build up this city to be scattered to the winds. Having an interest in that sleeping place of the dead, I write thus early to express the hope that due respect will be paid. But not all visitors to the cemetery were voyeurs, and one couple in particular recognised the cemetery's importance in Sydney's story. They knew it was worth preserving and took it upon themselves to see that it was. It was a real labour of love by these two people. It's one of those great markers that, that tells us that there is a historical consciousness developing in Sydney society. And it comes at a time of federation. It comes at a time when the Royal Australian Historical Society is just about to be founded. They were kind of really passionate about it. And they realised that there was this moment in Sydney's urban history that a lot of the colonial past was going. Mr Arthur and Mrs Josephine Foster lived near the cemetery on Albion Street in Surrey Hills. After the site had been declared for the station, the Fosters paid a visit to the cemetery. And it was while standing next to the grave of Mary Reby, 
convict and successful businesswoman whose face adorns today's $20 note, that they decided with pen and camera that they would preserve some at least of the historic graves for posterity. It blows me away every time I think about it because the practice that they did in recording the whole um, inscription is a practice that doesn't sort of resurface at that level of detail until the 1980s. So they are just so far ahead of their time in terms of recording and respecting the whole heritage of the cemetery landscape. You know, it wasn't just the genealogical information that they were interested in. They were interested in the whole stone. They began their work in 1899 and the project went on to occupy a full two years of their leisure time. The Fosters chose to focus on documenting the graves in the Church of England portion, the oldest of the seven denominations. Mrs Foster took photographs and Mr Foster copied down the words carved into the stones, even drawing the shapes and embellishments of the headstones meticulously into his notebooks. Photography in itself was still evolving as a practice and it wasn't commonly available. You know, it was quite an effort, a practice that was kind of chemically based. It's Josephine who's sort of doing it, working out the light exposure and everything. Like the feminist in me goes, go Josephine. In a few of the images, Josephine has captured her husband crouched among the grasses, hard at work applying black ink to the lettering so that the words would stand out clearly in the photographs. And then the, the kind of detail that her husband took in actually drawing so many of the headstones so we can see exactly what their design was and recording the typography and even recording the artisans' names as well, knowing that this showed so many different aspects of Sydney society. We are all indebted, I think, to the Fosters. And um, as a historian, I am ever so grateful for the work and the labour that they took in doing it. Having said that, if I time travel back to speak to the Fosters, I'd probably say, can you do a few more of the other areas? And obviously that just shows some of their biases, perhaps. The Church of England area was the largest area and it probably had a lot of the more prominent people in it. So there's lots of reasons we can understand, but there's the moments when I go, I wish I could just whisper in the ear, just go over there. As the exhumation of the cemetery commenced, the Fosters continued their work. Piles of sand start to appear in the photographs. The odd head sticks up out of a half-dug grave. Headstones are stacked, ready for transportation. And we can see the tracks being laid for the steam trams that would carry the remains to their new home. In what must have been one of the last images taken, a tram races through the middle of the shot, a ghostly blur picking up speed as it carries its cargo southward. The Sydney Mail, 1901. Rapid progress is being made with the work of removing bodies to the new cemetery at La Perouse so that a start may be made with the foundations of the big railway station. If journalists were excitable in the lead-up to the exhumation, it was once the digging commenced that they really got going. In one grave were a beautiful pair of Chinese slippers with the bones of a woman's feet inside them. On Monday morning, when the men went back to work, they found small candles tied in bamboo burning over the open grave. On the Sunday newspaper, The Truth, that throughout 1901, every week, it did 
a regular feature. And and at times it was it was really quite informative. But at other times it really went to town. Macabre stories being written, whether they were true or not, I don't know, of, of, of chains still round a person's neck where they'd been executed and then thrown into the Devonshire Street Cemetery just as they were still with their chains around their neck and their hobnail boots still on. But it makes you think, well, is this just the newspapers having an absolute ghoulish field day? But it was great reading. One of my favourite articles describes a coffin having been found quite empty. It reads, There is no knowing why that was so. Perhaps the lady eloped and pretended to die. Another Juliet, perchance. She wished to die to the world and begin life again. Such cases were not unknown in days when cruel wrongs were done to many an innocent woman who clung to the one she loved through all sorrow and truth. As the digging proceeded, it was discovered that the cemetery was even more crowded than expected. Many coffins were found piled on top of each other, often just under the surface. Some were found beneath paths and in all the spare ground, regardless of line or order. The morgue buildings had even been erected over graves. It is gruesome to watch the men at work. They draw out a spadeful, turn it over, and the bones are picked up and put into a sieve nearby. Then the earth is shaken off and they are placed carefully in a coffin that stands near. It is strange to think that within a lifetime the fragments of bones and skulls were men and women like us, and even the smallest bones has the power to make the people around feel in an awesome way. The exhumation process was slowed due to special requests of relatives to be present and the discovery of many lead-lined coffins also hindered the progress. Their weight required a dozen men. It is not a pleasant experience to see folk being dug up in brown, brittle bits, out of the damp, dank mould, into the blessed daylight which they loved once, which made them thrill with life, then put into coffins and put underground again, although it is being done in a tender fashion. Each headstone was systematically numbered, and not subtly. Large numerals were scrawled across the top of each in black paint. The remains from each grave were moved to a correspondingly numbered new coffin. Government records note number, name, religion, and new plot. Here's Lisa. To exhume a whole cemetery, it must have been such a bureaucratic undertaking. We talked today about sort of data mapping and data matching and and that sort of thing and you think crikey how did they do that in 1901 and triangulate everything and and make sure hopefully that people's remains didn't get mixed up you probably don't want to ask too seriously did they get the right remains I mean it probably was a little bit hit and miss the headstones footstones and iron railings were set out in neat rows just as the government had promised But Lisa is not alone in her opinion that the remains may not have been tracked as closely and reburied as respectfully as the government had originally intended. See, when these were brought out on the uh, steam tram, 10 sets of remains per coffin, and they put them in the graves. And when they put them in, they said they put the ones that belonged to the monuments, but we could never actually out for that, how would you know? But I do believe they did bring all the mines they found out here. 
The graves that were made here in 1901 were left in peace for just 67 years before their existence was once again called into question. The cemetery was running out of space and they wanted to get rid of them because they wanted to dig down and sell the props. And that's what they've done. All these beyond the road there, they've all been sold off in the last 50 years. It was the late 1960s when the cemetery trustees decided to cull the number of Devonshire Street headstones and create a pioneer memorial park. A 21-year-old Keith Johnson, then chair of the Historic Monuments Committee of the Royal Historical Society, was called upon to help decide which stones would be kept and which destroyed. And we took on the responsibility of selecting stones for preservation. And there were 2,800 of and I think we selected about 800. You know, a good representative of all sections. We didn't just concentrate on the oldest ones. We went to every section and there were treasures in each one. And some of them had an incredible amount of information, you know, up to three generations of family recorded on them. Well, that's not in any other document. It's not in a death notice in the paper, and it's certainly not in the parish registers. Keith was joined in this endeavour by his friend and fellow society member, Malcolm Sainty. The pair were well aware of the significance of these monuments. Once destroyed, many of their stories would be lost. So Keith and Malcolm decided to create a record of all the monuments that had been brought here from Devonshire Street, but they were racing against the clock. I think it took about six months we, I think we started in, in October 68 and we kept at it because they'd said that they wanted to demolish it. So we used to come out only ever on Saturday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. Just like the Fosters. <laughs> Sunday, you know, Saturday afternoon, never in the morning probably. And I'd had a clipboard. You know, we walked up and down every row. I read them into the tape recorder. We typed them up and we came back and checked every one of them. And we, it was quite a job. Sainty and I did the actual project on our own. You know, no government funding, nothing. You know, nobody else would put their hand up to do it. And if we had enough, they would have all been dumped. Keith and Malcolm published their painstaking work in their book, Sydney Burial Ground, 1819 to 1901. This book is a go-to reference for genealogists and historians alike. Sadly, however, not all the inscriptions had lasted long enough to be preserved in these pages. Well, as I understand it, there were over 3,000 monuments brought here and we could decipher about 2,800, either deciphered or partially deciphered, and they're in the book. And the others we couldn't read, you know, there were 200 old stones we couldn't read. Uh, so they weren't preserved generally. The others, sadly, and we had no control of it, were used in, as a wall in Botany Bay. Right. So 2,000 stones, I was a bit upset about that, but what do you do, you know? So we thought we are getting as better, a good a deal as we could have hoped for with over 800 being saved. Mm. They left the remains where they were. Yes. So these okay. plots have been resold off and there's nothing yeah. unusual about so that. When you're, so when you're looking at one of these headstones today, it's not as though that exact person, oh, their remains oh is, no. don't relate at all. No. Yeah, they yeah. could have been yeah. you know, 100 yeah, uh, sure. metres away sure, down there sure, sure. or over there near yeah. that sort of uh, singer house there. There are now just 746 memorials here which have survived the move from the old cemetery and escaped destruction in the 1970s. 
but they continue to slowly erode away in the Sydney atmosphere. The idea of 2,000 historic gravestones being turned into a retaining wall might appall us today, but it reflects something of the attitudes towards development that prevailed in 1970s Australia. There was an unbalance. Everything was going to be new and brighter and efficient and all these old-fashioned things like Victorian architecture were firstly ugly because you decided they were ugly and secondly useless because you decided they were useless. This is William Blackledge, a Sydney architect who has an enduring interest in old cemeteries. He's been a member of the National Trust Cemeteries Committee for around 20 years, and part of his work involves the assessment and conservation of some of New South Wales' oldest cemeteries. One of the problems is that stone has got a finite life. Sydney sandstone is said to have a life of 100 years, so you're looking at monuments much, you know, much older than that. So these things are living on borrowed time, and there comes a point uh, with highly significant monuments that you have to make a decision whether to bring them indoors or not. And when you make that decision, you're then cutting them off from their reason for being, which is as a grave marker, which for the Devonshire Street Cemetery is no longer the case, but in most other places it is. The purpose of that stone is to denote a burial. So you're also cutting it out of its context as well. So at what point do you say to a monument, either come inside or can you just fade away? But they're often describing an individual's life. They're a tangible um, record of somebody Uh, and they can be very valuable to the family and certainly valuable to genealogists who want to trace information about somebody. And sometimes the lettering can sometimes be absolutely beautiful. You know, the amount of craftsmanship that's evident, it's um, remarkable. And we've had situations where, you know, just as you have at Botany, where an inscription has been lost, and with that, the significance of that monument has also been lost because all it is now is a bit of stone. It breaks my heart a little to think of these stones being left to the wind, eroding back to the individual grains of sand that they were before being deposited into the bedrock of Gadigal earth, then dug up, cut up, and turned into objects of such significance to those who would erect them. But it's fitting in a way, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, sand to sand. Josephine's glass negatives and Arthur's books were donated to the library following Arthur's death in 1925, and they're the reason that the Dead Central Exhibition and this podcast exist. As Josephine herself once wrote, We all realise how rapidly the old is giving place to the new, and only by means of pictures will those who come after us know what Sydney was like once upon a time they will understand why many today still call this queenly city, dear old Sydney. After losing Arthur, Josephine didn't photograph or write again, but she remained closely involved in the Royal Australian Historical Society for the next 30 years. And in 1955, she was the last of the founding members to pass away. Keith joined the society in 1962 For two people who love history, they really didn't miss each other by much, just seven short years. Josephine and Arthur are both buried in Sydney's South Head Cemetery, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it is an amazing place to visit, isn't it? It is like, amazing. It's it really you is. You would never think to come out here. Well, it's I think it's really interesting because it is like going back to 19th century Sydney in many respects, you know, these people who lived in that era. 
The fact that the cemetery was cleared, we shouldn't be surprised at. And it was a practice that happened in many other places. Every city in Australia has moved beyond their, their burial grounds and actually pushed them aside to, you know, to make way for the modern city. Today, we've still got the issue of, you know, planning for the dead. Cremation's at 60, 70% now, but there's still a proportion of people that want to be buried and we need to accommodate that. So, yeah, planning for the dead is a huge issue and it's not an easy issue. And particularly when you have to think about location of burial grounds and and access and so on, it's quite a dilemma. This heart is no longer the seat. Oh, this heart is no longer the seat of trouble. And torturing Torturing pain. pain. It ceases to matter and beat. It ceases to flutter and beat. It never shall flutter again. That's incredible, isn't it? What are you going to write on your gravestone, Elise? (laughs) This inspiration. While we've been making this podcast, digging has continued on the metro and light rail projects at Central Station, and more human remains have been found. So we're heading back to Central to record another episode of The Burial Files. We'll be speaking with engineers and archaeologists working on the site about what they've found. While we put that together, we'll be releasing more of the stories behind the individual gravestone inscriptions. Next week on The Burial Files, Rachel Franks returns with the gripping story of the rise and fall of one of Australia's first newspaper men. Murder is, doubtless, a very shocking offence. Nevertheless, as what is done is not to be undone, let us make our money out of it. Many thanks once again to Katie Gilchrist and Lisa Murray for sharing their knowledge with us. Special thanks to Keith Johnson for his contribution not only to this podcast, but to the historical record, and to Malcolm Sainty. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voices of Rupert Dagar, Brandon Burke, Annie Finsterer and Catherine Timbrell. I'm Elise Edmonds.